Good morning. As uh, Tim just mentioned, my name is Christian, and I am uh, here today preaching for the first time as part of this church, and I am so thankful and so excited that I am now part of this body. Um, I didn't want to start without thanking you guys for your love, your kindness, your care for us. Uh, we really feel welcome. Uh, we feel uh, this feels like home, and we're so thankful for that. And so thank you to every one of you that has actually given us, provided us a meal. Uh, we've eaten great. Thank you so much. Um, and those of you that didn't, we're taking note. So <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. <clears throat> Anyways, um, would you turn with me then to the letter of Jude? Uh, before I came out, uh, Tim asked me to start thinking of a passage that I could share with the church, and, uh, uh, and this is the passage I chose, and, and the reason is because I had been studying, I've been helping out in Columbia, there's a little seminary, and they had asked me to teach a class for them, and so I was studying through the books of um, basically all the letters in the New Testament that weren't written by Paul or by John. So, you know, I did, I did James, I did Hebrews, I did First and Second Peter, and then Jude, and Jude was the last one I taught. And as I was reading it, it really hit me hard. And, uh, and, and this specific passage that we're going to look at today is something that the Lord just kept bringing me back to. Uh, and you'll see later, like the, the, the specific part of it is the closing of the letter, which is a doxology. And that's what the Lord really used to encourage me. And I hope uh, he would encourage you as well this morning. And so with that said, uh, let's get started. Charles Taylor, if you don't know him, is a Canadian philosopher who wrote a book called The Secular Age. In this book, Taylor gives us uh, what I believe to be one of the most accurate diagnoses uh, of the culture that we live in. In it, he tells us that we live in what he calls the imminent frame. So it, it's a thick 900-page book, but one of the, and so there's a lot to unpack from that book. But one of the points that he makes that I think is so interesting is that he tells us that we the society we live in today, we live in what he calls the imminent frame. If you're not familiar with the word imminent, it means like the, the, that which is immediate, right? That which is close to us, which is why Jesus, you know, is called Emmanuel, which means God with us, right? And so uh, Taylor tells us that you and I live in what he calls the imminent frame. By that, he means that we have lost sight. As a society, we have lost sight of that which is transcendent. We have lost sight of God. As a society, we are so convinced that we are self-sufficient that we rarely, we rarely think about um, the spiritual realm. We rarely talk about God. Uh, we just don't do that. Our eyes are fixed only in that which is immediate. Our ears are fixed only in that what the, that the world tells us is important. And we always find ourselves having a rational explanation for everything. So... It doesn't help us that the world is constantly preaching at us, telling us that the center of all our needs, the center of everything is us. We are the center. The world keeps telling us that our, our own self, our personal desires is which is most important. And that is what Taylor calls the imminent frame. And so... Uh, you've probably heard this say, said before, but St. Augustine in his book, Confessions, he starts his book by saying these words. He says, uh, we were made for you, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. 
Now, these words ring true because we all have felt this restlessness, because we all find in our hearts this desire for something that is transcendent that we can't find sometimes. Now, as Christians, we have found it. But the world finds this restlessness. And the way that we deal with it is by medicating with things that aren't God. In a, in a godless world, in this imminent frame, what happens is that we try, we try to appease this restlessness by pursuing our carnal passions, by pursuing uh, tribalism. Doesn't that sound very 2021? And we do so by pursuing the mindless consumption of the next great thing. I got to tell you, Apple has a new event tomorrow, and I am so excited. <laughs> and yet sad that I can't afford whatever is coming out. <laughs> But the reality is, when there's no God, we, we try to medicate this restlessness by three things, like I said, by our carnal passions, pursuing our carnal desires, by tribalism, finding our groups that we fit into, and by mindless consumption of the next great thing. Now, Mike Cosper, uh, an author, he says this. He says that the imminent frame is ultimately a dissatisfying place to live because it shackles a human heart inside a world that is simply too small for it. When we live in this imminent frame and leave God out of the picture, there is no external purpose or meaning to our lives. And so we find ourselves being forced to finding our own meaning. One of the ways that we do so is by crafting our own personal identity. In our attempt to craft a unique identity, we end up picking up a number of identity markers that help us present ourselves to the world as unique persons. Right? So we pick up things like, we present ourselves like, oh, I am, I am a Republican, or I'm a Democrat, or a Libertarian. I am a goth. I am a vegan. I'm into CrossFit. I am a super mom. Or God forbid, I'm a Gators fan. <laughs> but in a society like this, our religion loses its transcendence. And is it is reduced to a mere identity mar marker, which is why we often see people walking away from their faith. Now, a couple of weeks ago, I was, uh, it was my brother's birthday, and he loves hats. Maybe that's because he's losing his hair, <laughs> but he's a big fan of hats. And I noticed that he's been wearing this Yankees hat that he really likes. And so I didn't know what to get him. He lives in London, so it's not like I could just pick up something uh, quick. And so I was thinking, what can I give my brother that seems to have everything? And I thought, you know what? I'm going to buy him a hat. And so I bought him a Red Sox hat. <laughs> now, after I bought it, I thought to myself, man, he was wearing a Yankees hat, and I couldn't remember if he actually really liked the Yankees or just the hat. And I still sent it, you know, thank God for Amazon in London. But I sent the hat, uh, and just in case you're not aware of this, okay, the Yankees and the Red Sox, they don't mix, right? Okay, they're, they're, it's a big no-no. But anyways, long story short, that the day he receives the, the gift, he sends me a picture, and he's wearing his new Red Sox hat. And he told me he loved it, which I was thankful for. But here's the thing. My brother clearly isn't really invested in a baseball team. As a matter of fact, I think it's probably been years since the last time he watched a game. And so he had no problem wearing a Yankees hat one day and then wearing a Red Sox hat the next day. Now, the reason I'm telling you this is because in the secular age that we live in, our religious affiliation is seen kind of like my brother sees those hats. They're identity markers, and today they're convenient for me. I like the way it feels today, but tomorrow I may change it for something else. 
And so they be, our religion has become then an identity marker. Now, why am I talking to you about this? And it's because as you walk around as a Christian in this world, you've probably seen many Christians who have discarded their faith. Maybe there are people in your very family. Maybe there are people, uh, friends that you grew up with or people you admired that suddenly, it seems, walked away from their faith. And if you are at all like me, you have probably, um, this may have caused anxiety in your heart. At times, you may have probably asked a question like, how, how can I make sure that this doesn't happen to me? If it happened to these people that I really respected, how can that not happen to me? And today's passage, I believe, helps us. Jude will help us figure out how it is that we can make sure we don't fall away from the faith. Now, for context, today's passage is actually only uh, the closing section of a longer letter. It's only a 25-verse uh, letter. Uh, but the first 16 verses, Jude has spent them warning people about false teachings. He has been telling the recipients of the letter that there are those that have infiltrated the church who pervert the grace of God. There are some people that are in the church that are leading people away. In a few verses that we look at today, we will look at today, we will see how Jude encourages his original audience then to contend for their faith. As they find themselves among false teachers, he's going to tell them to be aware of the dangers that are around them. He's then going to tell them to guard themselves by pursuing the love of God. Then he'll instruct them uh, on how to interact with those that may be seduced by false teachings. And finally, he will point them to Christ as the one who will keep them and sustain them. So what do you guys say we jump into our passage this morning? Let's read the first two verses. I know Tim already read, and he definitely read it a lot better than I would have. But I want us to read this first two verses, 17 and 18. And I want you to notice what Jude is doing here. He is telling the people to beware of the dangers of the world that seeks to distract them from the truth. He says this in verse 17. But you must remember, beloved. Do you hear that word? Beloved. Do you hear the pastoral heart from Jude? He's not just telling you what to do. He cares about the recipients. He says, but you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, the void of the Spirit. And so after having spent nearly 16 verses taught warning us against false teachers, Jude tells us to remember the predictions of the apostles. Now, we have no other record in Scripture of this specific prediction from the apostle, but Jude tells us that the apostles predicted that in the last days there will be scoffers who would cause divisions. There will be people that would be in the church trying to divide the church. Jude predicted that there would be false teachers. Or the apostles, I'm sorry, the, the, uh, predicted that there would be false teachers in the last days. And by the last days, he doesn't mean, you know, left behind kind of days, but it means like the time between the, the, the ascension of Christ and the day when he comes back. And so we know that there are people that are here dividing the church, and hopefully not here in Trinity, but in this world there are people in the church that are, that are trying to divide the church. In, Jude 16, in verse 16, I'm sorry, Jude actually describes them as grumblers. He describes them as malcontents, loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. Who would have thought? Apparently Jude had access to Facebook and Twitter or something. Um, 
But so here Jude starts by telling us then to remember. Not to remember, it's not that we may have forgotten, but it's actually a, a, a command to be watchful. To be watchful because we are surrounded by people who intentionally or even unintentionally will cause us to lose sight of that which is important. The world is preaching to us at all times. And you know this. The world is preaching to us at all times. And we need to be aware of that. We need to be watchful. I think most of you would agree with me that we live in a broken world that is evil. That was the case, not only, that's the case not only for us, but it was the case also for the original recipients of the letter. It's honestly pretty easy to identify evil in the world, isn't it? All it takes sometimes for us is to just look at what's going on in Washington, D.C., what's going on in Hollywood, and we can easily identify, man, the world is really preachy. The world is really trying to tell us what to do. It's relentlessly, relentlessly I'm sorry, preaching at us, trying to persuade us, and unfortunately, they're often successful. And honestly, this can be scary. Now, at the time of this letter, uh, at, the, at the time the letter was written, these Christians were living in the Roman Empire, which honestly would have made Las Vegas blush with their debauchery and their ungodliness. But notice that Jude isn't pointing at the world, which is what we do sometimes. Right? You hear the world is evil, and so we think of all those things. But Jude isn't doing that. He's actually not pointing at the world. He's not pointing at the Roman Empire. He's pointing inside the church. And so whenever we are reading this passage, whenever, as, we, as we read this passage together, I want you and I need you to be watchful, not only with what's going on outside the church, but inside the church. Yes. Not only inside the church, but inside our own hearts. Right. It honestly worries me that the very words that Jude and the apostles used to describe the false teachers could be used today to describe a lot of Christians in America. Grumblers, scoffers, malcontents, people who cause division. These are things, these are words that we use to describe false teachers, not believers. What worries me even, uh, even more is that these are traits that our culture celebrates. We just tell it like it is, right? And the problem is that these attitudes have seeped into the church. They have seeped into the body of Christ. And we often, if we're not careful, fall into the trap of acting like the world. And we forget, and we sometimes put aside the fruit of the Spirit in order to give our opinion. So let this be a reminder to check our hearts when we, when we interact with those that we disagree with. Whether it be in person, on social media, or even in our own hearts. You know those fights that you have with people that you're not actually with? Those fights that you have in your head and in your heart. Be watchful of those things. Because these words that Jude used describe the world. He's telling people, contend for your faith. But this is not how we do it. He's about to tell us how to do it. So how about we go to our next section. We're going to read verses 20 and 21. And here we're going to see that Jude is telling us to be active in pursuing the Lord through the means of grace. He says this in verse 20. He says, but you, beloved, again, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. 
Now Jude has warned us about these false teachers. He now turns to instruct us. He's going to tell us what to do about them. And the first thing that he tells us is this. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Now you may be telling me, you may be thinking, Christian, there's a few things before that. Jude tells us to be building ourselves up. He tells us to be praying. He tells us to be waiting. And that's true. But here, the center or the main instruction that he's giving us is to keep ourselves in the love of God. And the reason we know that is because the rest of them and the other instructions end with ing, which are participles, right? And so they're dependent on the main clause, which is this, keep yourselves in the love of God. So how can we make sure that we don't fall away? How can we make sure that the world doesn't win in the battle of our hearts? By keeping ourselves in the love of God. Now, if we're not careful, we might misinterpret the command that Jude is giving us. Because keeping ourselves in the love of God, if you're not careful, you might take it as as thinking, oh man, I need to keep this up so that God may love me. You may be thinking that it means that you need to be good so that you can make yourself lovable so that God can love you. Would you please hear this from me? This is not at all what Jude is telling you. This is not at all what Jude is telling you. When he tells us to keep ourselves in the love of God, he's not saying that we need to keep ourselves afloat, that we need to maintain ourselves lovable. I can't even do that in my own marriage, right? My wife loves me, but not because of my performance. (laughs) But please, please hear this. If you are in Christ, as Paul says in Romans 8, there is nothing absolutely nothing that can separate you from the love of God. Not even your own weak, clumsy self. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. Now, what Jude Jude is telling us here is that when, when he tells us to keep ourselves in the love of God, what he is telling us is he's telling us to orient our lives towards the presence and towards the love of God. To keep ourselves in the context of God's presence and love. And how do we do this? Well, he tells us that we do this by building ourselves up in the knowledge of God, by praying in the Spirit, and by waiting in Christ. A short term for this would be the ordinary means of grace, or the habits of grace that we heard about earlier. Now, I'm not going to go over all the means of grace. He actually focuses on only two of them. But I do want to talk about those. So the first way that we keep ourselves in the love of God is by build, building ourselves up in the knowledge of God. When Jude tells us to build ourselves up in our most holy faith, he doesn't mean the gift of faith, but he means the gospel, the truth of scripture, the, 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 the message of Christianity, if you will. And one of the ways that we protect ourselves then from worldly influence is by marinating in the word of God. By spending time in the Word of God. We read it. We study it. We memorize it. We delight in it. Peter tells us elsewhere in 2 Peter. Peter has uh, has told us, you've heard before, that we have been given all things for life and godliness. You know what that means? That everything that you need to be holy for life and for godliness is has already been made available to you. 
Now the question is, how do we tap into it? Peter tells us that we do that through the knowledge of Christ. And so what, we, what, what Jude is telling us here is to build ourselves up in the knowledge of God. And how are we to know God? By his own revelation. By his own revelation. You know, my wife and I just got here, my family and I just got here. The way for you to get to know who I truly am is not by asking Tim who I am, but by spending time with us. And in the same way, if you want to know about God, this, you sitting here and listening is helpful. You going to community groups, absolutely helpful. But you want to go to the source. You want to go what God himself has to say about himself. And so we marinate in the word of God. We spend time in it. Herman Bovink, who's a Dutch theologian, puts it beautifully. I use a lot of quotes because I'm not very poetic and other people say it better than I would. But Herman Bovink says this about the word of God. He says, in scripture, God daily comes to his people. In it, he speaks to his people, not from afar, but from nearby. In it, he reveals himself from day to day to believers in the fullness of his truth and grace. Through it, he works his miracles of compassion and faithfulness. Scripture, and I love this part, so pay attention to it. Scripture is the ongoing rapport between heaven and earth, between Christ and his church, between God and his children. It does not just tie us to the past. It binds us to the living Lord in the heavens. It is the living voice of God, the letter of the omnipotent God to his creature. I love that. So as we build ourselves up in the knowledge of Christ through his word, not only are we building ourselves up, but we are also building up the walls of protection for our faith. So that's number one, spending time in the word. Number two, Jude tells us, is praying in the Spirit. And I know this is not surprising. I think none of you are shocked that I'm telling you, you should spend more time in the Word. You should should spend time praying in the Spirit. And yet, we need to hear it, right? (laughs) Prayer is an essential part of the life of the believer. Not only does it strengthen our faith, but it also weakens the desires of the flesh. Charles Spurgeon, again, he, he beautifully, puts it, beautifully puts it when he says, Prayer plumes the wings of God's young eaglets so that they may learn to mount above the clouds. Prayer brings inner strength to God's warriors and send them forth to spiritual battle with their muscles firm and their armor in place. If you want to resist the world, if you want to resist the, 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 the preaching, the constant preaching, the relentless preaching of the world, spend time in prayer. Just as Jesus said to his disciples in the garden, I say to you this morning, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. Church, let us spend time in prayer. I want to take a moment to be transparent here with you. Because I really, like I said, I really doubt anybody here is surprised that we should be spending more time in prayer and in the word. I know you already know this, and I know you already feel like you're failing at it. And the reason I know that is because I feel it. The reason I know that is that I actually had a conversation with Tim this week where I was telling him, I've been struggling since we moved to Titusville. I've been struggling to find a a regular rhythm for me to be in the Word and in prayer. 
it's just, it just feels clunky. It just, I'm still not there. And so this Thursday morning, I woke up, and, um, and I just felt the weight of it. And so I dropped off Tiago, my son, at school, and then I decided I just need to do something different because this isn't working. And so I just found a little park just down the road, and I just was able to sit. You know, the, the cool thing about Titusville is that you can find, like, amazing views no matter where you go, right? And so I just go to the park, and I'm looking at the water, just me and God, and I was able to sit down and pray and read the Word. And just that little thing did so much for my heart and for my soul. And so let me tell you this. I am aware that at times, carving out time for the Word and for prayer can be a struggle. I know that. I know it is when you're a parent of young children. But I was also a teenager who never did it, right? (laughs) I know that it can always be a struggle. But let me encourage you this morning. Just keep trying. Just keep at it. Even when you feel like you're talking to the wall in prayer, keep going. Even when you feel like you're not getting anything from the passage you're reading, just keep doing it. Just keep reading. Just keep in mind that this isn't something you're doing for God, but that God is doing in you as you draw near to Him in prayer, as you draw near to His Word. It's not about what we're doing for God. It's what He's doing in us. And I know at times you might be reading through Leviticus and say, I got nothing out of this. That's not the point. The point of, your, of your, the discipline of drawing near to God through the Word is not for you to be smarter. It's the fact that God is, walk, is working in your heart through faithfulness and obedience. To just keep going. Number three. The third thing that we do in order to keep ourselves in the love of God is waiting in Christ. Waiting. I can do that. This, though, means that as we seek the Lord, we do so with our eyes fixed on the mercy of Jesus. This means that we have to be mindful of that day that is coming when we will see the fullness of the work of Christ. When we read the word, when we pray, we don't do so to earn mercy, but we do so because we have already received mercy. Yes. Dane Ortland, in his book, Gentle and Lowly, which we will be reading together soon, and if you haven't read it, I recommend just read it. Uh, don't wait for us. Um, but, but he says this. He says, there are two ways to live the Christian life. You can live it either for the heart of Christ or from the heart of Christ. You can live for the smile of God or from, I mean, for the smile of God or from it. And church, as believers, we live from the heart of Christ. We live from the smile of God and through the power of the Holy Spirit in us. So we can do this, church. Let's go to verses 22 and 23. And here we're going to see what, what Jude is going to tell us, how to interact with those that are uh, believing false gospels, with those that we disagree with, if you will. Verse 22 and 23 says this, And have mercy on those who doubt. Yes. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now Jude has told us, how to behave in order to protect ourselves. Now he's going to tell us how to interact with those that are into false teachings. And he gives us three categories. First, he talks to us about those who doubt. 
Then we'll talk about those who are seduced by, by false teaching. And lastly, we will talk about how we deal with actual false teachers as well. To those who doubt, he tells us to show mercy. There are people in your life that will have questions about their faith. There are people sitting here today that may have questions about their faith. They may have even grown up in the church and still have honest questions and, uh, about the faith, and they may be wrestling with what Christianity truly is. What does Jude tell us to do? Show the mercy. Show mercy. The problem is our instinct is immediately to correct them or to pontificate, isn't it? Trust me, that is my default. Now, if you remember, Job's friends were doing amazing when they showed up to be there for Job, when he had questions, when he was suffering, they showed up and they were with him. It all started going downhill when they started pontificating and correcting Job's theology. Don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that you shouldn't have you know, theological questions or debates, right? That's okay as long as you're doing it with mercy and with love. We need to show mercy. We need to enjoy in conversation. Not with the aim to win an argument, but with the aim to win a soul or to strengthen the faith of someone who's weak. Then Paul, uh, Jude tells us how to deal with those that are seduced by false teachings. And what does he tell us to do? He tells us to snatch them out of the fire. So how do we deal with our friends that are seduced by false teachings? We deal with them urgently and directly. When we see brothers or sisters who are flirting with false teaching or who have bought into it, it is our responsibility to call them back in love. I recently, I was sharing with the guys yesterday, I recently had a couple of this kind of conversations. I felt compelled by the Lord to reach out to a few friends that I think may be in danger. And it was scary. But let me tell you, they were worth having. Those conversations weren't worth having. I do want to clarify something here. There are some who are being seduced by false teachers. There are some that are on the wrong path. And there may also be people in your life that you just disagree with. And let us be careful. Let us be careful, be careful because not every disagreement is an actual false teaching. Not every difference of opinion on secondary or tertiary, tertiary issues are, you know, some of them, they're okay to disagree on. And, and it's okay for us to have difference of opinions without dividing. So let's not be too quick to accuse others of falling away just because they don't agree with everything that we say. Let us learn to be wise. Let us learn to, to, to discern what is actual danger and what is just a difference of opinion because you treat with them differently and lastly um, Jude tells us how to deal with those that are false teachers themselves those that are already in the wrong and actually proclaiming it and he tells us that even those who are obviously far from God Jude tells us to treat them how with mercy how countercultural is that you're not, you're not called to be dunking on people, to correcting their Facebook posts, right? And trust me, that is something that I have failed at. <laughs> um, because it is our instinct. 
Jude tells us to deal with them with mercy and with fear. He gives us two caveats. Yeah, we show them mercy, but we do so with fear, meaning that we should be careful when engaging with them. We need to be careful not to get carried away, not to engage in unfruitful conversations either, right? And then he tells us this. He says, hating every garment stained by the flesh. What does that mean? Hating every garment stained by the flesh. This garment that he's talking about represents sin. And he tells us that when we engage with them, even while showing them mercy, we still have to remember the depth of their sin. And we need to be careful not to justify it. And not to be entangled in it. Why do we do this? We do this because this is exactly how, what Christ did for us. While hating our sin, he showed us mercy. And he cleansed us all of all unrighteousness. And he made us his own. Let us be full of love. Let us fight for mercy. As we talk to those that are in a, in a dangerous path. But let us actually have those conversations. Because the easy thing is to not have them. And I want to close with my last point, which is this from Jude. I mean, from what Jude is telling us, not my point, his point. Is this, uh, we need to find rest in the finished work of Christ who keeps us safe. Verse 24 says this. He says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forevermore. Amen. After giving us a few instructions, then Jude is ending his letter by pointing us back to Christ. He closes the letter with what we call a doxology. And a doxology is an expression of worship that results from thankfulness. And this short doxology, gives, uh, Jude gives us three reasons to praise the Lord. And I want you to walk away this morning with these three reasons to praise the Lord. Number one, we praise God because only He can keep us from stumbling. What a promise this is for us. After hearing a list of to-dos, we might feel a bit overwhelmed of everything that we should be doing. Yet, as Christians, we get to trust Jesus, that it is He that will keep us from stumbling. There are responsibilities that we do have as Christians. The right thing, you know, there are some things that we should be doing, especially pursuing God through the means of grace. But even these things aren't what keep us safe. The only one that keeps us from stumbling is Christ himself. We are called to keep ourselves in the love of God, but ultimately it is only he who can keep us in him. As Tim put it, when we were talking about this passage just earlier this week, he holds on to us as we attempt to hold on to him. So when you're looking for assurance, please don't look, don't make the mistake of looking at your past performance. Whenever you're looking for assurance, please don't look at your ability to obey, at your ability to hold on. When you're looking for assurance, don't look at your performance, but look at the performance of Christ yes. at the cross, who said, it is finished. Amen. The same Christ that saved you is the one that will keep you. Yes. So when you're about to stumble, 
or while you are stumbling, or even when you have already stumbled, run to Christ. And let me, let me tell you this, and I want you to hear this clearly. When you run to him, he delights on giving you grace. He does not give you grace while rolling his eyes. He delights in providing for you. He delights in giving you what you need because he loves you. Number two, we praise God because only he can make us blameless. Blameless. I don't know where that T came from. Do you see what Jude is telling us this morning? He is reminding us that if we are in Christ, we will one day stand before the Father and He will present us as blameless. Which makes no sense when you look at your own life, right? And yet, we will one day be presented before God the Father as blameless. Do you see what Jude is telling us this morning? You and I, no matter what you've done, no matter where you are today, no matter what you do tomorrow, you will one day stand blameless before the presence of God. Every human in history will one day stand before the Father. Everyone. Now there are two options. You will either stand before Him as guilty and condemned, or you will stand before Him as blameless, justified, and perfect. If I remember correctly, Tim mentioned something along the lines, along these lines last week. And he said something similar to every sin will be punished and accounted for. Your sin will either be paid by you or by Christ. But no sin will ever go unpunished. Now as Christians, we praise God because we know our sin has already been paid for. And in the eyes of the Father, we stand as blameless. Not because of our effort. Not because of our obedience but because of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Amen. John Stark, a pastor in New York City, says this. He says, when we become Christians, our lives become so identified with Christ that what is said of Christ, died, buried, risen, exalted, and revealed in glory, is also said of us. What is true of Christ is true of us. What belongs to Christ belongs to us. And I don't know about you, but this causes me to want to praise the Lord. And the third reason that I want you to have this morning to praise the Lord is that we praise God because only He can fill us with great joy. Notice how Jude says Christ will not only present us blameless, but He also tells us that on that day uh, we will stand before Him with great joy. This is great news. For some reason... As a young believer, I always pictured my, my, my entrance to heaven, kind of what it was like for me to go home uh, the day that my parents received my report card. I would go home because I knew they loved me and they kind of had to receive me. But I would try to avoid them. I would not look them in the eye. Now my parents are watching this, I think. Love you. Um, <laughs> But the reason, the reason I avoided them the day that my parents received their report card was because even though they loved me, I knew I had, you know, my performance was pretty disappointing. I didn't want to deal with that. Now, the day that you get to heaven, 
God will not be shaking his head. He will welcome you with great joy. And there will be great joy in you. And there will be great rejoicing in him. When I graduated high school, I don't know who was happier, me or my parents. (laughs) We were both very happy. And in the same way, when we get to heaven, not only are you going to be full of joy, but he is as well. Now, reading Jude's words reminds us that when we stand before the Father, he will be with great joy, which reminds me of the picture of the story of the prodigal son. Remember that section in the story of the prodigal son that the Bible tells us that the father is running with open arms to his son. Now, the only difference is that unlike the prodigal son, we do not have to wonder how he will receive us. On our way to heaven, we know and we are assured that he will receive us with great joy. Not because of anything in us, but because of what he did for us. Church, Does this stir your heart for worship or what? Is it any wonder that Jude cannot help it but to end this letter with an explosion of praise like he does? You and I serve a wonderful God. We serve a loving Father that not only has the power to save us, but He also is pleased to keep us and to keep us from stumbling. Church, this text is clear. It is filled with warnings and with encouragement to persevere. But this text also reminds us that we need to be pursuing God and abiding in Him. And it also reminds us that He is worthy of our worship. A counselor friend of mine once told me that the deepest desire of the human heart is to be seen, completely forgiven, and still wanted. Church, this morning, we are celebrating that in Christ, this deep desire of our hearts is fully met. In Christ, we are fully seen. He knows the depths of our sinfulness. But we're also completely forgiven and still wanted. Church, would you stand with us and answer to the Lord in worship?